I know that one of the most pressing questions on your mind, you've been asking me, a number of you have been, is where are we going next in our preaching after we finished all these uh, sermons, all this time in the book of Hebrews and studying through Hebrews for such a long time, what's next? We're through the holidays and where are we headed next? So let me give you just a little bit of outline for the next year, Lord willing. We'll see, whatever the Lord designs. But the plan is this month, uh, all through this month, I'm going to be teaching on the subject of prayer and I'll explain a little bit more on that in just a moment. But we'll, we'll be focusing on prayer this month. And the next major study we're going to dive into is the book of First Thessalonians. And I know that's a barn burner in your mind. You're thinking, First Thessalonians? Who reads that one? I mean, I, you wouldn't say that, but I've kind of seen that look in your eye like, huh, what, what would make you, you choose that one? Well, probably because you have that look. And you need to know this book, and I want you to know this book. Plus, First and Second Thessalonians have a lot of information in them, a lot of emphasis within them about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to dive into some of that and look into issues related to the return of Christ. <clears throat> but not just the return of Christ for studying that subject, but for its effect on the congregation. What you'll see in the book of First Thessalonians, I think it's one of the most pastoral letters you find. You see the heart of the apostle for the people of God and the people of God for their shepherd in Paul. It's a marvelous look into that, and I want you to see that. But it's such a rich treasure trove of Christian living and living in light of the coming of the Lord and how the coming of the Lord actually motivates us in the here and now as we await his return. And I want us to dive into that together and in this season that the Lord has us in, uh, and it will probably take us the better part of the year or all year long to get through First Thessalonians in the summer. Um, I, I just thought we finished Genesis this past. I thought the next thing ought to be just to keep going into Exodus. And so in the summer months, we'll turn back into uh, the Old Testament and we'll pick up where we left off and we'll start in Exodus chapter one and we'll study there. But this month, I, I want to focus on prayer for a number of reasons. I know that a new year always brings about this renewed focus on a number of significant issues in life you, that you want to do better, you want to be more faithful in. Uh, whether you call them new, new Year's resolutions or not, it doesn't really matter. We all feel that new year comes. It's natural. It's normal for us to say, yeah, there's some things that I'd like to do better. I'd like to be a little more faithful with throughout the next coming year. And that's good. So you've probably already started it's just January 2nd, but have you already started and stopped your diet plans or your exercise routines? Or maybe you, you want to give greater time to family devotion. Maybe you want to rework some of the, the ways you, you approach your work life. I'm guessing there's all kinds of thoughts like that going on in your mind. And with that, there are probably thoughts about how you're going to renew or even start new uh, maybe habits or disciplines related to the Christian life too and your spiritual disciplines. And my guess is many of you have started your new Bible reading plan. It's day one. If you're behind, that's okay. You can always catch up, but you've probably started some of that. I started mine. It's the same plan I've been reading for probably, I don't know, eight or nine years. I just love it. I'm in the Old Testament all year, the gospels all year. I'm in the poetic sections all year, in the epistles. I just love spending time in the word like that, just giving me this bird's eye view of all of the scripture. 
And just going through the word year after year after year is so renewing to my soul. So I, I loved going back to Genesis and beginning again and reading there and Psalm 1 and 2 for just these opening days. It's wonderful. And I, I'm guessing you have some of those new habits that are starting your life. And all of that's good and it's right. You should be thinking that. Beginning of a new year is a good time to think those things true. But I think we also all know that all of these resolutions are only as strong as the conviction of your soul is regarding them. Now, if you just approach any of these resolutions or any of these new habits or any of these issues by saying, I need to do this, you'll probably quit doing it. Because if you just say, yeah, I should do this, that's not internal conviction and resolve. If, it's, if I don't do this, there are severe consequences, that's when you actually start doing something. If I don't start this, it's going to have an adverse effect or the, the benefits of doing this far outweigh not. When it's an internal conviction and an internal resolve, that's when some of these habits begin to stick. And when it's not an internal conviction, they tend to wane. That's what we need. We need to work through the grind when exercise doesn't feel fun anymore. And the hunger pains when you're saying, this diet stinks, right? You have to keep pushing through some of that. When you reconfigure your commute time and your sleep habits and your day-to-day activities because you know that making this change is necessary. It's not just something you should do. It's needed. It's absolutely essential. I, I say this often when I'm talking with people about how they use their resources Have you ever noticed we all find time, money, and ability to do whatever we really want to do? If we really want to do it, we figure out a way to pay for it. We figure out a way to make it work in the schedule. We rearrange things because we really want to do it. And if we don't really want it, we let it go. We know that all the time. What Biblically speaking, how should we think through this? Well, there is this curious little passage in 1 Timothy 4 that you ought to dwell on some in some significant ways. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 says, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. I think we'll get to that eventually, what that means, not this morning. but On the other hand, discipline yourself. There's New Year's resolution, right? Discipline yourself what we're thinking about. How do I discipline myself? But it's not just discipline yourself. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For the purpose of godliness. Because bodily discipline, and that, that's a whole range of ideas there. There's, there's your diet and exercise. Bodily discipline. How you use your physical self. Bodily discipline is only of little profit. It's not of no profit, but it's of little profit. Why? Bodily discipline is limited. It's limited in its impact. Bodily discipline does not have a universal scope of impact. It's limited. Bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness impacts everything for all time. 
Therefore, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So you need to think about how all of these resolves of the heart relate to godliness. Diet and exercise, they're good, they're needed, but they're limited in impact because they don't determine spiritual health. Now they may offer some challenges, but they don't determine spiritual health. You don't have to feel good to be spiritually healthy. But godliness is determinative of health in every area of life. And godliness is defined by understanding the scripture correctly. And I say that because you can't just staple Bible verses onto personal convictions. You have to make sure you understand what the scripture is saying and follow the correctly understood and interpreted word of God that leads you to a God word, a godly living. And you got to discipline yourself for that because you and I both know that the natural inclination of our soul is not toward godliness, it's to drift away from it. And so we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of living in a God-centered way. I think if you were to boil down the essentials of the kinds of habits that breed godliness, you could basically put them into four different categories. Scriptural intake, prayer, fellowship, and evangelism. Now, there's lots of tributaries that come from those four, but if you want to be a godly person, these are essential. You can't neglect the intake of God's word. You can't neglect prayer. You can't neglect fellowship with the church. You can't neglect evangelism and be spiritually healthy. Those are essential. And there are many tributaries that flow from those global kinds of evangelism, all kinds of scriptural intake from preaching to Bible reading, etc. But these are essential to your life. Taking in the the word, prayer, fellowship, and evangelism. Now, over the last number of years, it's been my habit in our preaching and teaching to address many of these throughout the year. You'll remember this past year, all of our staff and our elders emphasized evangelism when they were preaching on the Lord's Day morning because we want that to be in the forefront of our minds. That's a spiritual necessity for our health. We often emphasize the necessity of the word of God in preaching, in teaching the word of God. You hear that regularly around here. We've talked a lot about fellowship in the church. This year, we really want to emphasize the the element of prayer. And you're going to hear that from all of our staff, all of our elders, and particularly this month, we're going to talk a lot about prayer and strengthening our grip on prayer. Now, one of the specific areas that we want to focus on in prayer is developing your own personal intentional life of prayer. So here's what we're going to do. This morning, I'm going to talk about prayer and preaching. I normally start the year by talking about some aspect of preaching, but in the the rest of the weeks throughout the rest of this month, I'm going to focus on Matthew six, but in a specific way, I'm going to take the disciples prayer, what was commonly called the Lord's prayer. And I want to teach this to us in such a way that we could take what is taught there and the example that's given to us and use it and incorporate it practically into our own personal intentional life of prayer. 
Now, you've heard it said many times, Oswald Sanders says it in his book, Spiritual Leadership, the quickest way to humble anybody is to ask them about their prayer life. I mean, whoever prays enough, whoever feel like their prayer is sufficient, there's always something in us that says we can grow in prayer. And I find many people, just like we talk about evangelism, many people don't evangelize because they don't know exactly what to say. Many people don't pray consistently because they don't know what to do with it or how to approach it. But the Lord has taught us. So the goal is, is to teach on that in such a way that we could practically use it. And then hopefully by the, by the end of the year, I'm hoping by the fall, we'll have a practical tool that we've put into writing that we could put in your hand, that this would be a tool you could use to enhance your personal approach to prayer. And so we'll be taking the month to try to put that together and put that in your hands and teach on it. But this morning, I want to, I want to focus on prayer and preaching. We've talked a lot about preaching in the past. We talk about it a lot. And I usually take the first part of the year to talk about some element of preaching, whether it's defining what preaching is, how to listen to preaching. Even last year, if you'll remember, we talked about how to take preaching and expand it and have it reverberate through the gathering of the congregation in what we sing and what we talk about and how we disciple one another. Well, this year I want to take how do we combine prayer and preaching And I don't mean my preaching and my praying. I mean you're praying for whoever preaches in this pulpit. How often do you think about that subject? And is it only on a Sunday that you're thinking about praying for those who are preaching? Or does it really consume a lot of your activity throughout the week as I think it should? You say, well, this sounds a little self-serving. Preacher's going to preach on something that's going to benefit himself, and it is. It is, it will. I'm hoping that you'll pray more for the one who preaches, whether it's myself or any of our elders, any of our staff, and some of the guest preachers that come into our pulpit throughout the year. I'm, I'm really hoping that you will pray more intentionally, more fervently, more specifically for those who preach the word, because it's not just to the preacher's benefit. It's to the entire congregation's benefit that we pray for those who teach us the word of God. And I want to unfold that this morning for us. Because I want you to think about this too. We know that preaching is fundamentally a spiritual exercise. It's not just giving a talk. It's not just the mechanics of giving an effective speech. That's not what makes preaching effective. What makes preaching effective? God, the spirit of God makes preaching effective in our hearts. Now, if that's true, if it is true that God is the one that makes the word, his written word effective when it is communicated and taught to us, then we ought to be praying that God would make that happen among us, that we experience that effectiveness because we've been seeking God in that, asking him to do it. That's what I want to focus on this morning. There's a lot of passages we could go to. When I was thinking about this subject, I went to many of the different passages that you find, especially in Paul's letters, where he's actually asking a congregation to pray specifically for him. 
And I want to zero in this morning in this little passage that was read for you in Romans 15, the very conclusion of this theological treatise that most people look at and say, this is a a theological Mount Everest. That's what Romans is. And you swim through the depths of the theology. You you pinnacle at chapter eight and you see the heights of the entirety of the Bible from chapter eight. And some people are really scared by the book of Romans. Well, it's such, such deep. Well, it's really a practical book. It's really a very practical book. The entire book of Romans is really just one single argument says that you need to centralize the gospel in your life, not marginalize it. That's why it spends 11 chapters outlining what the gospel is, because when it gets to chapter 12, he begins to apply it to practical issues going on within the life of the Roman Christians in the first century. Here's how you should have that gospel impact your fellowship. And the gospel should even impact the way that you are praying for those who are communicating the scriptures to you. And we'll see that in verses 30 to 33. Really what we find in these verses, it's a description of an effective effective approach to praying for those who preach God's work to us. An effective approach to praying for those who preach God's word. So how do we pray effectively? Well, let's see if we can see it together. Seven different elements of effective prayer for those who preach. Just in these few verses, verses 30 to 33. Seven different elements of effective prayer for those who preach the word of God to us. Let's look at these together. The first one is this, pray with divine urgency. Pray with divine urgency. First part of verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Just stop right there. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ. The word urge is the popular word in the Greek New Testament, parakaleo. Sometimes it can be translated as encourage. But it's used at least four times in the book of Romans, and every single time it is used, it seems to stress an urgent activity. Not just an encouragement, but an urgent activity. I exhort you. I beg you. I'm pleading with you. I'm calling you to this action. It is an urgent plea from Paul to do something. And you can see very clearly what he's asking them to do. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and you see it at the conclusion of verse 30, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I am telling you, I'm calling you and urging you to pray for me. That's what Paul is saying. And there needs to be a divine urgency in it. I'm calling you to this and exhorting you to do this by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just saying, listen, my circumstances are challenging, so I need you to pray for me. That's not what he's referring to here. I, I, I'm feeling weak and I, I need you to pray for me. That's not what he's saying. It's as if he's saying, Jesus wants you to pray. And he wants you to pray constantly for me. This is not just my desire, this is a desire that comes from the heart of the Lord himself. And even uses his full divine name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign God, the God-man Jesus, who is the only savior of the world, is calling you to pray. Now, that sounds urgent to me. 
That sounds as if there's a weight of authority and an urgency behind this, which is how we should see prayer. If we really believe that nothing spiritually effective would happen outside of God's people praying according to God's word and God acting upon it, if we really believed that, we would pray. We would pray urgently. Now, if we're kind of the, the hyper-Calvinist and we were to say, ah, God's sovereign, he'll do whatever he wants, whether we pray for it or not. We don't really need to pray. We don't really need to evangelize. God's just going to do whatever he wants. Then why would Paul need to say this? Why would he need to speak this way? Because in the sovereign plan of God, God chooses to act through the prayers of his people. That's how he chooses to work and to act. So pray, seek him, ask him, be specific. And pray with a sense of divine urgency as if God himself were calling you to this. I mean, how urgent is intentional prayer to you? How urgent is it? I don't, I don't mean to say, do you think prayer is important? No, I mean, how urgent is it to you? Well, you can answer that by examining how consistent prayer is in comparison to other intentional habits over which you discipline yourself. What are you going to overcome that you know is going to be a roadblock in a way to you keeping your diet plans and your exercise plans and your Bible reading plans? I mean, you're going to go through, if they're going to be effective and consistent in your life, you're going to make certain choices and you're going to make those choices because you believe these things are very important. They're necessary. How necessary is prayer to you? But not only that, how necessary is praying for the one who's going to preach on Sunday to you? If we really thought that the effectiveness of preaching was dependent upon the activity of God, we would pray like that. We would pray like that. We would pray with that kind of devotion, dependence, urgency, obedience. We would cultivate a regular intentional habit of praying about preaching. We, we do it every Lord's day. It's, it's by design. When the elder in our church comes up to the pulpit to read the scripture and pray for the sermon, he's praying that God will open our eyes to its truth, that it would bear spiritual fruit among us. We are asking God to do that. We do it congregationally. I hope that you do it every Lord's day before you come, that you're praying for that. But could you do that through the week as well? Pray day in and day out for the one who's going to, to preach. Every, every week we publish a preparing for Sunday blog post. One of the reasons we do that is so that you can pray about the passage that's going to be preached and the person who's going to be preaching it. And that you're intentionally engaging in prayer for them. And we're going to talk about ways in which you can pray for them but are you doing this through the week? Do you know how many issues come out up during the week to challenge my preparation to preach on the Lord's day? I mean, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle all the time. We should be praying in regard to that so that what comes on Sunday is effective. How urgently important is it to you to pray for those who will preach? 
Pray with divine urgency. Second, pray from Christian love. Pray from Christian love. It's at the end of verse 30. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and, notice this, by the love of the Spirit. That is the love that is produced by the Spirit. The love that comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul has already said in the fifth chapter of this book has been poured into your heart. The gospel pours the spirit into you. And now that spirit produces in you love. And you could literally look at this and say, Paul is urging them because of the love that the spirit has produced in him. He's urging these people to pray for him because the spirit is producing that in him, which is interesting. He's urging them to pray for him because the spirit urges him to do it in love. What does that mean? Well, if you think about what love is, love is your devotion to the greatest good of another. It's your devotion to the greatest good of another. If the Apostle Paul thought the greatest good of that could come to the people in Corinth was that they, or in Rome, Rome, is that they would actually apply the word of God that was preached to them, then he would say, you need to preach, you need to pray for me. You need to pray that that ministry that I have among you is effective and strong. This is a love that comes from the spirit. It's not just personal affection, it's spiritual affection. And if he can urge them from that love, certainly they should pray for him through that spirit-generated love. That's what should motivate it. Now, I know everybody's got their favorite preachers. Everybody does. I like this guy, and we, we, we hear him all the time. On, you know, we used to listen to the radio, and now it's all on the internet. So we listen to our favorite preachers here and there. We can download their sermons. We can read their sermons. We can listen to the podcasts. We can, and, and there's a great comparison that goes on between preachers. And there is a wealth of great preaching available to us, isn't there? It's wonderful to have such a wealth. But you don't pray for someone simply because I like them best. You don't pray for them. You don't, you don't look at the preparing for Sunday posts and say, oh, he's preaching Sunday? I'll pray fervently for the one that I like. No, you don't, you don't do that. It's from the basis of love that the Spirit produces in your heart for the greatest good to the congregation. That's what motivates you to pray from Christian love for the people of God. You pray for the one who will preach so that has the greatest benefit to the church. Pray from Christian love. It's a commitment that you have that sees the greatest good in the blessing of others. Let me give you a third element of effective prayer for those who preach God's word to us. I love this one. Pray as a participant. Pray as a participant. Look at the end of verse 30. I urge you, brethren, by the Lord, there's divine urgency, by the love of the Spirit, that's Christian love, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I want you to be a part 
of the ministry that I have among you, Paul says. And what is his ministry? You say, well, he did a lot of things. He, he probably was shepherding them. He's writing them a letter. He was caring for them. He, we know, and we'll see this in a moment, he's bringing an, an offering to the Jewish people from the Gentile churches. He wants that to be effective. But listen, every bit of his ministry is tied around his preaching and teaching ministry. If people don't accept his preaching ministry, they don't accept any other aspect of his ministry. So he wants them to participate in his ministry with him. Join him in it. Strive together with me. To strive together is one word in the Greek New Testament. It's the word agonizomai. Soon agonizomai. It's made up of two important words. Agonizomai, you can hear an English word from that. Agonize. Agony. It's the common word that's translated as strive or fight. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I have agonized the good agony. I've struggled through the good struggle. 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. That word fight is the word agonizomai. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, those who compete in the games, compete in the games is to struggle in the contest. John 18, 36, it's translated as a fight. That's what agonizomai means. And when you put it together with the little preposition soon, it's fight with, fight with, struggle, strive with me. Do it together with me. There's an example of this in Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, Paul says, who is one of your number. He was a member of the church in Colossae. He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greeting. Always, listen to this, he's always laboring earnestly. That's, he's agonizomai. He's agonizing earnestly for you in his prayers. I wonder what that looked like to see him really striving, fighting, wrestling in prayer. Now, this is not, this is not wrestling with someone. It's not like Jacob with God. It's not like wrestling against principalities and powers. That's not the idea. It's being in the game with me. Get in the game. That's what he's saying. Be involved in the contest. Be a member of the team. This is not a spectator sport. Think about that. Preaching is not merely a spectator sport. You should be participating in the preaching. You say, well, we don't let just everybody preach at the same time. First Corinthians says that would be a disaster. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do the same thing. That never happens in a team sport, does it? Everybody's got their job. Everybody has to do their job at the right time in the right way so that it's accomplished as it should be. Listen, when the Cowboys won the Super Bowl this year, I <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in there. They're all, everybody in the organization is going to get a ring. The guy shooting water in the player's mouth, he's going to get a ring. As well as Dak Prescott. They're going to they're get a ring. Right? They all get a ring because they're all 
doing their job. They're all part of it. They're all participating. They're all striving together. Yes, I know I'm going to be humiliated for saying that. I am every year. Do you think of it that way when you pray for the one preaching that I'm actually participating in the ministry of preaching by praying? I'm actually participating in the ministry of the word by praying for those who preach the word. Striving together, agonizing with them in prayer. Well, I think that's how we should view preaching and teaching the word is praying with the kind of tenacity as if you were in an all-out struggle and you're a part of the team and you're a participant in the ministry. Listen, when you are listening to the word, you should be worshiping. You should be engaging with God, engaging in the word, thinking through what is being taught. It's not just a passive activity. And nor is it passive if you're praying for the effectiveness of the word in the entirety of the congregation. I think we should pray as if our own personal vitality is on the line, as if we're participating in the ministry of those who are preaching. It's not a spectator sport because the church is a body. One part of the body hurts, the rest is affected. It's the team. Pray as if you're a part of the team. Intentionally, intensely pray. Let me give you a fourth element of effective prayer for those who preach the word of God to us. Pray for deliverance from opposition. Pray for deliverance from opposition. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And what's the content of that prayer? Verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Who's he referring to? Not merely just those who reside in the location of Judea, but those who are the people connected to Judea, the Jewish people. These were the people who were Paul's primary opponents when he's preaching and teaching the gospel. He would go to a new area. He might begin in the synagogue because the gospel is coming first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. He would begin there and his opposition would begin there as well. They would run him out of town in many places, chase him off into other places, send people to find him. They're disobedient. It's a word that means unbelieving, unbelieving. Acts 14, two, this word is used. The Jews who disbelieved or were disobedient stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Or Acts 19, nine, when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, or that is disbelieving, speaking evil of the way before the people. Or Romans 2, eight, those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth. That is, they are unbelieving. They don't obey the truth. They're not believers. Now, this is interesting. Paul is not in Rome. Obviously, when he's writing this, he's sending this letter. So he's somewhere else. How could the Romans actually know what the opposition is? They don't. They'd have some general idea that there's Jewish opposition to the apostle Paul, but they don't know the specifics. But who does? The all-knowing, 
ever-present, all-wise God knows what the apostle is facing. So who could you make appeal to in regard to this opposition to God? You, you may have no idea what kind of opposition the elders of this church are facing. You may have no idea what elders in other congregations are facing in specifics. It doesn't matter. You pray that they would be rescued, delivered from any and all opposition to the word of God. You're not under some thought, are you, that everything's getting better in relationship to people's acceptance of the gospel. Are you under that impression? If you are, I wonder, where have you been? Our culture's not warming up to Christ. There's more opposition today than we've seen in in many, many years to the gospel of Christ, to churches being churches. As, As soon as the church speaks truth to any issue that the culture has a different opinion on, the knives are out in a more vicious way than ever before. You identify yourself openly as a Christian in the public square and you state your convictions, you will find a more intense opposition than you have ever seen. What do you think is going to happen now that we're live streaming? Now that everything that is, is said across these pulpits is out there for any and all to see all the time. You think the opposition is going to grow weaker? It's more than likely going to grow more and more intense. Are you actually constantly praying for those who are preaching the word that they won't cave to the opposition? That they won't hunker down or say things in a more soft and docile way that will not offend? We need to be praying. It's going to come and it's going to come from many different angles. It could be from the organized culture, the broader unbelieving culture as it's organized against the church, maybe. Maybe it'll simply come through pressure applied to people from unbelieving family members. You ever felt that? Unbelieving family members who make you, the Christian, seem as if you're non-intellectual, you have nothing really to add to the conversation, you're a hayseed thinker, so you start to back away. Maybe it's opposition that comes from the sinful desire within the preacher, stoked by cultural temptations that are surrounding him. He doesn't want to be the sore thumb. He doesn't want to give up accolades from the culture. They'll give them to you as long as you say what you're supposed to say. You get accolades. People praise you. More people come. It happens. Most opposition comes from the constant intake that the congregation has of other philosophies, new ideas, personal convictions, cultural entertainments, worldviews, religious opinions, and we are drinking those things in constantly all week long. Have you noticed? You have personal convictions on things. And what do you feel inside if someone from the pulpit addresses one of those convictions as he's preaching? Warm fuzzies? Something warm. Anger? Start to distance perhaps a little bit. You find yourself in maybe a more oppositional tone. If that's happening in you, 
What happens in the unbelieving world when they hear these things? We don't need to be reminded that the system of unbelief has no affection for God's word. But we also know that God is going to hold every single preacher accountable for how he handled God's word publicly. Pray that he'll be delivered from opposition. Pray for that. Let me give you a fifth element of effective prayer for those who preach. Pray for acceptance by believers. Pray for acceptance by believers. It's not just praying for rescue from the disobedient, but also that, it's the second part of verse 31, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now, what was his service to Jerusalem? Well, he was collecting an offering from Gentile churches as a a blessing and a sign of unity with the church in Jerusalem that was suffering from a severe famine. So he brings this offering from these congregations. He wants it to be a blessing. Now, this is a challenge because many Jews in Jerusalem believed that Paul was selling out the law of Moses. So they're not sure if they want to accept him. And if they don't accept his preaching, they're not going to accept this offering. They're going to think, oh, this is from all those poison churches. So he's saying, I want you to pray that when I bring this ministry to the saints in Jerusalem, they'll accept it because they accept what I'm preaching. I wonder if you ever think about that much, that you pray for the believers to respond well to what is taught. Again, there's all kinds of thoughts that are swimming around in the air today about everything, everything. You have a question pop in your mind, you jump online, you look up the answer and you assume that the answer, if you can get at least two sources on the internet to confirm it, it must be true. It's not hard to do. You can probably find 10 or 15 sources and they all have authority. Have you noticed? They all have authority. They're all, you know, the preeminent in their field, whether it's law, whether it's medicine, whether it's politics, you name it. They're all authorities and they all have great experience and they all have, have good reviews, a couple of seedy ones, but they've got good reviews. So it must be good. And so you have your conviction And you come and that conviction is challenged at church, in a teaching, in a class. Have you noticed what happens to your fellowship with those who begin to disagree? It has a tendency to grow distant, less open, less involved, because you're not on my side. And rarely does that kind of distancing have to do with our understanding of the Bible? But it's on these other issues. We need to be praying that there is a tenor among the church. There is a mindset among the congregation that is ready to receive whatever is clearly taught from the scriptures. Now, preachers are good at giving their opinion on things too. And sometimes it can get clouded in the pulpit when the preacher wants to give his ideas on something. That's why 
preaching has to be tied to the details of the text of scripture. It has to be. You see, but the, and the scripture doesn't deal with some of the details in life. Where the scripture's not explicit on those details, we ought to hold somewhat lightly to our convictions then. Where the scripture is clear, we better hold tenaciously to those things and define our fellowship according to them. If we define our fellowship and our allegiance and our loyalty with each other to something other than the explicit teaching of the Bible, we'll be a splintered group. And we'll start doubting everything else that is said from the pulpit. It's a poison. You see how the enemy is sowing the seeds among us? Of doubt and disloyalty and splintering? How do you counter that? Well, I I can't follow everybody on social media all the time. I'd quit life if I had to do that. How depressing and discouraging. And then you wouldn't post when I needed you to post so I could know what's going on in your life and I'd have the FOMO disease, a fear of missing out, right? We, we can't do that. We appeal to God. He's with you every single day. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows the circumstances of your life. He sees everything that's going on in life. And you're praying, God, give us a sensitive heart. Make us sensitive to the word. Whatever it takes to have us supple in the hands of the Spirit of God, that's what we need. Pray for that. Pray for that ministry to be effective. Do you find yourself praying that way? Wrestling alongside the preacher in prayer that the people who are impacted by the ministry, that they actually welcome it and receive it and accept it and they're transformed by it? And they start making decisions in life based on what they're hearing in the Bible. If preaching is going to be effective, it requires the hand of God. So obviously it ought to have the prayers of God's people. I mean, we know the tendency, don't we? We've been told. We need to pray that God's people will have a spiritual appetite for the word. And that their appetite for the culture would grow dim. You remember what Paul told Timothy? They will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And I might add, those desires will be posited as convictions. They will. Your desires are what you feel strongly about. And when those desires are tied mostly to your own personal conclusions, not to explicit, correctly understood scripture, you're going to demand that people teach in accordance to them. What's easy today? Now, if there was just one church in one city, you'd just go start another church. But here... You, you can go anywhere and go anywhere in the metro area and you can find more than likely a place that will teach in accordance with your desires. Are your desires, is your appetite for 
a correctly understood Bible. We need to pray that that's what God's people want and that they're hungry for and that they won't be satisfied until they get that. Let's look at a sixth element of effective prayer for those who preach God's word. This is a, this is a really interesting one. Pray for rest through fellowship. Pray for rest through fellowship. So Paul wants them to pray to God for him, for an effective ministry. And notice verse 32, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. This is a part of his prayer request. Pray so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. That phrase, rest in your company, it's one word in the Greek New Testament. It's the only time in all the New Testament it's ever used to relax in someone's company. That's the idea, to rest, rest, relax in your company. Tom Schreiner in his masterful commentary says, this is not the relaxation enjoyed during a vacation. It's not what he's looking for. The refreshment stems from the fellowship and joy that exists when members of the church mutually minister to one another. Paul regularly, we could look at this and we'll see it emphatically in the book of 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians when we study it. He regularly communicates how much joy he finds in the people of God. He would tell the Thessalonians, you are my joy. You are my crown of rejoicing. I find my satisfaction in you before the Lord. He communicates that often. That's where Paul found his rest. In his relationships with the people within the congregation. Isn't that fascinating? How often time, how often do you find yourself? I, I struggle with this at times. You think to get rest, I need to isolate myself from everybody. I just need to get away from everybody. And, and maybe there's a time and place for that. But you think I've got to get away from everybody. If I could just be alone and not have so much input and demand and request, I'd rest. And you find yourself at the end of having hours or days of that kind of alone time, agitated, frustrated, angry. You ever found that? Why are you laughing? Because you know that's true. You found that to be true. Because the absence of people does not produce rest necessarily. You feel at ease and relaxed and joyful when you're around people who are refreshing to you, right? When you find people who are pouring in, not just taking from, when there's a camaraderie that exists among you in which you can have even a casual conversation and even that casual conversation is dripping with Christ. That's restful, isn't it? And every One who preaches the word, who constantly gives out and pours out and pours out to people who need to hear the word, they also need rest in the kind of fellowship in which they receive input and enjoyment 
as they see the congregation applying the word and they find relationships building around the things of God, there's an ease that comes over the soul of a preacher in that kind of environment. And he needs that. Those who are involved in any kind of leadership, any kind of leadership, regularly say, if you read books on leadership, even secular books on leadership, you find this common idea that leadership is a lonely task. Why? Because leaders have to make decisions that are not popular with at least some segment of those they're leading, right? And you feel as if now you're, you're somewhat isolated from a group that's not seeing it the way you're seeing it, but you have to go that direction. So it is a lonely work. Elders feel that at times. I mean, over the past two years in our discussions about, you know, all the stuff that's gone on, uh, every, every potential issue that's kept us up late at night thinking through how do we make decisions. We know that every decision we make, you can't please everybody. In fact, you're going to displease a significant group of people whom you love. And that's not restful. That, that, that's what keeps people up at night, isn't it? He's, Paul's asking for prayer about his ministry that would lead him to find refreshment in the fellowship of God's people because they're welcoming the word. Do you pray for that? Let me encourage you to pray for the elders of your church in that way. Let them find refreshment in the fellowship of God's people. So that when they serve the people with the word and they make decisions that tend to isolate and sometimes push them away from some segments, that they still have a fellowship and a camaraderie that cannot be removed. That's refreshing. I I know this to be true. No one will ever be spiritually strong without relationships. They won't be. And I, I've been taught in ministry by some <clears throat> that a pastor should never get very close to his church members. And most church members are like that. That's terrible. But do you know why they're taught that? Because church members bite at times. They, they get close and they see something that's <clears throat> challenging Get close enough, you find out the preacher's just as sinful as I am. He's got his issues, his challenges. Right. What do you do with that? Where do you go with it? Who do you talk to about it? That's where it gets challenging for the preacher to be disconnected from the congregation because he doesn't want to be harmed by the congregation. But you can't have spiritual strength that way. You can't really have a fruitful ministry that way. You can't be disconnected from people and have no real relationship with them if you want to have spiritual effectiveness with them. And as we say regularly here, yes, we understand part of being a Christian is learning to work through the challenges of relationships with other Christians and not leave every time we get our our feelings hurt or we're offended with something, but actually trying to work through that in a process of reconciliation that the Bible calls us to. It is challenging. It is painful. It is difficult. 
I'd rather have that kind of challenge and difficulty with God's people who've been transformed by the Spirit of God than have to try to work that out with people who haven't been. And there's a common bond around the gospel. You can work through things that way. And that's refreshing. That's rest. So pray for rest through fellowship. Let me give you a last one. Kind of a summary. A seventh element of effective prayer for those who preach. Pray for God's favor on God's people. Pray for God's favor on God's people. Verse 33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You know, when I was younger, I used to hear many of the people, especially the older adults around me who would pray, they would always pray, God be with this person. God be with that person. God be with us. I'm like, why are you asking that? God's everywhere. He's with us. And here's Paul praying it. Now may the God of peace be with you. Why is he praying that? You may not realize it, but that, and I won't take the time to go through all of it, but that phrase that God be with you is a biblically loaded phrase. We studied it a number of times in the book of Genesis of how the Lord was with Abraham. Even when Abraham was kind of a scoundrel, the Lord was still with him. His favor still rested on Abraham because of a promise that God made. He was still with him. That meant his affirming favor was still there. His approval was still upon him, not because of Abraham's actions, but because of God's promise. God was with him. God was with Ishmael. God was with Jacob. God was with Joseph. He was with him. Yes, God is omnipresent. It's not what we're talking about. It's the affirming hand of God's favor. It's what it means for God to be with us. For God's peace to be with us, it means that there is the understanding and the receptivity of the fact that we are at peace with God because of Christ in the gospel. He has established peace between us. He was once our enemy. We were his and he established peace through Christ with us. Now, this is the prayer that we would actually experience that favor, experience that peace in our regular living. In the way that we interact with one another, we see the peace of God. The tranquility of God is operative in the way that we interact with each other. It's experienced in the way that we pray to God. We pray to him so openly, so freely, so consistently because we are at peace with him. We're experiencing the favor of God. Pray for that. Pray that the people of God see and sense and experience the favor of God. Nothing happens effectively without that. We all go according to our sinful bent if the Lord is not with us. We do. Pray that God would be with this congregation. Pray specifically. This is why I I encourage you, get that membership directory that was given to you and that will have a new one with a lot of new names in it coming out in a month or so. And pray specifically for that God be with them. Let your favor rest on them in the way they do their work and how they're engaging as a family and how they're fellowshipping with the saints. When they come, let their hearts be open to the word of God and let your favor rest on them. Pray for that. 
This is how you pray for those who preach. And I, I want to encourage you. Let's, let's not make that a New Year's resolution that we say, I'm, I should do that. Let's make this a habit of our Christian experience that we are constantly praying for the effectiveness of the public ministry of the word of God in our hearts. That's transformative in our congregation. And if we have a transformed congregation that's looking like the image of Jesus, that becomes an effective work in the community. That's why we pray for those who preach the word. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish our time of meditating on the scripture, we do ask that you would make this a divine compulsion in our soul, that we would desire and long and see the necessity of regularly interceding and fighting with alongside those who are preaching the word, fighting against sin, fighting against the tendency to drift away from the truth of scripture, fighting the tendency to enjoy too much of the world that we neglect an appetite for the word. Father, would you make this a praying church, a church that sees the divine urgency that's fueled by the Lordship of Jesus. I pray that God, you will give us a great devotion to the good of each other in this congregation produced by the work of your spirit dwelling among us. I pray that God, we would see ourselves as participants in the battle for the spiritual vitality of the gospel in our world. Father, I pray that you will deliver those who teach and preach the Bible in this place. You deliver them from the unbelieving opposition around us. Father, give us a congregation that constantly welcomes the preached word. Let this be a place where we come and we find refreshing fellowship in each other. And Lord, would you do this? Would you show your divine favor on our congregation? Would your favor rest over this church as we respond to you in your word? Lord, we ask for this not because we want our names to be honored or exalted. We want no honor or exaltation for ourselves. We want, we want to see you in your splendor in the way that you live out your divine life among us so that we represent you and your glory well to the world that's perishing so that they would see Christ and have life. We pray for this in our Savior, Jesus Christ's name, amen.